Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's July 20th, 2023, and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew Halsbarby, and as always, I'm here with Austin Knight. How are you doing, Austin? We've uh, we missed a couple of weeks. Uh, I know. So I know. Yeah. Miss, miss the I sound of your you. voice, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. Uh, where did you go? <laughs> I, I I cannot uh, confirm my my location at any point. No, I actually had uh, I had a, a week out where I had uh, a vacation down in Cyprus, which was incredible, and actually. I think just timed it right where it was like 32 degrees Celsius, which was very hot. Uh, what's that in Celsius to Fahrenheit? Uh, yeah, like 90. Uh, but now it's kind of like pushing um, towards uh, like over 100. So oh, yeah, wow. a bit too much. Europe is basically on fire right now, if you, <laughs> if you haven't heard. Uh, so... It's uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's pretty wild. I think parts of um, parts of Spain are in like the forties Fahrenheit, which is uh, in forties uh, Celsius, which is very very high. Yeah, unreal. Yeah, and uh, oh, a few things happened while uh, while we were out. I guess a few minor minor little things. We're going to talk about some of those today. XRP, uh, the Ripple SEC decision, is going to be a big talking point. Um, And more so because I'm sure everyone listening has heard about the XRP ruling. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the important details in there and what this means uh, moving forward. And we're going to talk about what I can only describe as like, it it goes into the category of only in crypto does this happen, which is (laughs) kind of like the unbelievable story uh, of the death of multi-chain, which is and was one of the largest cross-chain bridges. Um, this is a truly crazy story. My favorite uh, what it, kind of crypto story. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. You know, we've had a bit of a drought since uh, North Korea were using their stolen <laughs> funds to fuel the nuclear campaigns. But, you know, we're back. We're back at it. <laughs> All right, let's jump into the first story of the day. This is the somewhat unbelievable story of multi-chain and how it went from being the leading cross-chain bridge holding north of $100 million worth of assets to no longer existing. And more importantly, having no sign of where their CEO is who holds the keys to all of these assets. (laughs) (sighs) I, you know... it's it's a sign of the times when I'm not even surprised that I've just made that statement. But let's just start quickly with with what multi chain is. So for anyone that participated in DeFi summer of 2020 and 2021 um, during the the big bear run, you might have if you were buying a whole host of shit coins like myself across many different unknown chains. You might have used multi chain. You may have remembered it as any swap which allowed you to kind of somewhat seamlessly bridge assets from one chain to another. Very popular with anyone that used uh, Phantom in particular um, and any other EVM compatible chain. Now, 
the project was kind of continuing. They had a few little issues like over the, the past few years, but nothing major and has been still a widely used bridge, especially in like the EVM uh, chains. May 21, 2023. So we all of this information has just kind of come to light now. And we're going to kind of re, uh, recall the, the facts step by step. So the CEO of Multichain, uh, Zhao Zhen, was taken away by, at least allegedly, by the Chinese police from his home and has been out of contact with the core kind of global multi-chain team ever since. That includes... We called it, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, yeah. I don't know if you'll recall, uh, but when back several episodes yeah. ago when we yeah. first started covering the story, it wasn't really clear... <laughs> where he was. All, all we knew was sort of this funny tale of like, oh, hey, uh, our CEO has disappeared and we can't maintain our systems anymore. And we speculated that perhaps he had gotten Jack Maud. And uh, that was yes, a bit of a joke, did. but also a bit serious. Turns out that's exactly what happened here. <laughs> it, it certainly seems that way, at least. Um, there are maybe some other theories that, that, that we could come on to, but I think for now, a, a leading theory here is, yeah, he got Jack Mart. The, the Chinese police took him away. Here's where uh, things get a little strange, though. So for the multi-chain team, they have these uh, various different MPC node operators. The, 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 to access the nodes that power the network and basically be able to do a lot of the operations, make changes, push changes to uh, the uh, the protocol, and also to access funds, each of these operators need to give access to um, uh, via the MPC nodes, right? The access keys had been revoked at this point from all of the node operators. This is pretty strange. What's even stranger... And I don't know if this is strange or just downright negligent. It's, well, certainly the latter. But all of the MPC node servers were running under the CEO's personal cloud server account. And nobody on the whole of the core team had access to them. Like, what? Let's just start with that. Like, what was their plan if, like, he died or something, right? Like, this this is bizarre. So what this means is all of the funds are locked unless Xiao Zhen, the CEO, gives access, but he's uncontactable. So later in May, <clears throat> the team, they managed to make contact with his family, and they learned from Xiao Zhen's family that all of uh, his computers, phone, hardware wallet, mnemonic phrases, etc., were confiscated by the authorities. And, you know, it, it, does, it does seem... <clears throat> and I believe this, that the core team at Multichain have just kind of been completely left in the dark. They've they've had minimal access to basically just about keep the lights on. Uh, they had lawyers involved and they, they posted out this tweet where it said, the team has chosen to cooperate as much as possible with the demands of Zhao Zhen's family and adhere to the requirements of local laws and regulations, refraining from disclosing unauthorized information about the case to the public. I thought What's that was kind of... deal with the demands of... Demands. Yeah. Right. And I think that's where it's like, hmm, it's interesting framing. Like, if you were saying that 
you're going to work with their family to like help figure it out. You probably frame it a bit more like that, but the demands of the family, that it's a bit strange. Well, on May 30th, the team decided <clears throat> they need to announce what's happening to the community, the public. It's gone kind of past the point of like where they've had no additional information. And this is when we covered this kind of situation initially on the podcast with much less color, to, to, to be completely honest, because we were in the dark still a bit here. About a week later, June 4th, Zhao Zhang's family successfully logged into the cloud server platform, <laughs> allegedly using historical information from his home computer, which I think is <clears throat> very convenient, right? But Did they... he like save his password in Chrome or something? <laughs> yeah, it was his Apple Notes. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's just his kid's name with like number one at the end. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, well, the family agreed to let the team <clears throat> access the um, the accounts via the, the home computer, right? But what I thought was kind of weird was they only allowed the team physical access uh, so that they could solve an issue with two of the routers, but do nothing else. Um, and then Zhao Zhang's family and the lawyer, they were in like communication with the police. The team had not been involved by any of the details of this case. But what they were told, at least, was that Zhao Zhan was going to be released soon. And they were just told, hey, just like keep maintaining the system and you'll get updated on this. So, you know, team did all they could. They kept things running largely as it should. And <clears throat> there weren't any, at least major issues to the way things were operating outside of the fact that the team is in chaos. But for the, the user... No, nothing was kind of going wrong. And then three days later, July 7th, this is where things take a turn for the worse. And I think this is where we get into the part of the story where you start to wonder about all of the information we've heard so far mm. as to whether that is factually correct. So on July 7th, a unauthorized transfer from the MPC addresses, which contain all of like users' assets from uh, from multi-chain. This is around about $126 million worth of, of crypto assets. They just move to um, to a, a wallet that is unknown to the team. And <clears throat> it's not related to multi-chain in any way. And the, the team said that according to, and this is why things start getting really weird, right? It's like, according to Zhao Zhan's sister, Login information from an IP address in Kunming, which is in China, was found on the cloud server platform, along with a series of operations transferring funds from the NPC addresses. And then two days later, Zhao Zhan's sister, without informing the team initially, just transfers whatever was left of the remaining user assets, it was about over a million dollars in value, um, from the router pool. Um, so <clears throat> within this, what you have is in a cross-chain bridge, liquidity providers are incentivized to <clears throat> put funds into a pool that then can be used for people to access like an exchange assets from cross uh, from different parts of the chain. This is why we often see in bridges they're the most like exposed to attack vectors because the, once the pool gets kind of hacked, you can pull out all the funds. Um, well, then Zhao Zhan's sister then lets the team know she's kind of tried to preserve what was left. 
and some like related parties. And she transferred these addresses to uh, these these funds to two addresses that were just controlled by Zhao Zhen's sister, which the team do not have access to. I have these wallet addresses and I was looking in them. One is like got about a million dollars worth, mainly in like the Alchemix token. And then the other one is just like full of a bunch of like shit coins that are roughly worth about 20, 30K. Um, <clears throat> so you think, okay, well, we've secured like a little over a million dollars in value. I mean, it pales into uh, into insignificance. However, <laughs> at least that's there. Well, July 13, this is four days later. According to Zhao Shen's family, the police have taken Zhao Shen's sister into custody. She is completely out of contact. The team has no information on like who has access to those wallets or the assets. And a day later, and this was Friday of last week, the team announced that they've got no operational access, they don't have access to any of the funds or any kind of related uh, information related to where their CEO is. So they are having to completely cease operations. They don't even have access to the multichain.org domain name. Um, so they can't actually bring down the front end of the website or redirect it to say this is no longer operational. They they literally tweeted GoDaddy to help them. <laughs> it's like, what the hell is going on, right? It's like, this is a project holding po- like m- hundreds of millions of dollars of assets and they operate like this. And it's worth noting, right, that like... <clears throat> A lot of projects, DeFi projects in particular, and protocols had a load of their assets locked up in multi-chain. Like if you want to enable, let's let's say you're a project that is on the Phantom blockchain, and you want to enable users to bridge over your like token uh, from the Phantom chain over to let's say mainnet ETH, you need to supply. A, like a, a bunch of your tokens into the multi-chain pool so that people can kind of like be able to uh, swap between those two chains. So <clears throat> there's been a whole host of projects that have been absolutely wrecked, um, albeit most of them not exactly the highest quality projects. But I saw one where it was like Hector Dow, which was from a fork of Olympus Dow and that whole craze. They have decided to just liquidate the remaining $16 million worth of their treasury because they got absolutely wrecked and the like most of their funds were were lost as a result of this. Um, and they're just handing that whatever's left back to token holders. Um, so it's, things like this is just, it, it has far-reaching um, impact and anyone that was a liquidity provider has got wrecked there as well. So really not good this really like something doesn't smell right here and lot a lot of accusations around this potentially being an inside job which we can only speculate around but even if it wasn't you know this situation should have been avoidable if it wasn't right if this is an inside job yeah i mean they haven't even really hit it very well um if it wasn't this is just straight up the most basic level of negligence and poor security and OPSEC like that you could ever have like set up in a project like this. Yeah. So many twists and turns in this story, man. I mean, what do you, what are you, where are you leaning? Do you think it's more likely that it's possible that both of them were brought in by Chinese authorities and they both got Jack Maud or do you think they're off 
on I am leaning towards this is <clears throat> this is a coordinated attack. Um, it it just feels like there are a few things that happened here where <clears throat> sure a lot of it could be explained where maybe the Chinese authorities have uh, have made some of these changes, revoking access from some of the NPC node operators, things like that, but. It just it, it just seems like a strange target for Chinese officials uh, to to be completely honest. Definitely not out of the realms of possibility, right? And like, I don't like to get my conspiracy hat on here, but this just feels like if you were going to try and get away with hundred plus million in assets from a project you run, it's probably the way that this gets done. So. I would say the one thing that's tripping me up, though, is the fact that they're blaming Chinese authorities. It just doesn't seem like the the smartest entity to blame. I understand that the narrative could yeah. potentially track in the industry, but that seems like a like a really nasty hornet's nest to poke. You know? Um, yeah. I, I well, bear like in it, bear in mind this is what the team have been told, right, <clears throat> and what mm-hmm. they believe. Um, Whereas, like, we've had no official comment from the actual CEO. He's technically, according to this, been unreachable, etc. I believe it. What the team believe, if if that makes sense. I I, I don't think that the core team are being dishonest here. Um, I think they are actively trying to get to a resolution, and I think they are in the dark. Um, but yeah, it's. This situation should just never be able to happen like this. And this is one of the yeah, massive sure. problems we have in the space is that this can even be a thing that can happen. Um, and it's very disappointing. And it's not the first, uh, unfortunately, either. Yeah. And I'm sure it will not be the last. Well, that's um, a very practical takeaway, but I still want to speculate. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Do you think it's possible? I wonder if Zhao Jun was, brought, was actually brought in by Chinese authorities. And that part is true. And then the family starts to freak out over what's happening and think, hey, we need to get out of Dodge and we're going to need a lot of money to do that or something to that effect. Starts draining the accounts because they happen to have access to it. And then like the sister either does or doesn't actually get swooped up by Chinese authorities as a result of that. Maybe they're all gone. I wonder like Mm. what could potentially be. But then if you think about it, the fact that everything was so centralized around his home computer. It's yeah. just so bizarre. I mean, that's either, yeah, to your point, like really, really bad infosec and just operational architecture, or it would have to be intentional, right? Exactly. Like, like intentional centralized control to be able to pull something like this off. Or you could say maybe it's just a paranoid person. I don't know. It's bizarre. I, yeah. I, that That's kind of where I come to is like, I just... It seems strange that you would build a protocol like this and have just such an obvious attack vector for a protocol that has so many attack vectors already being a bridge, Mm -hmm. right? You know, Um, it just feels like it just had to be deliberate. And I think about like, you know, the story around like the sister, okay, maybe that she's tried to like pull some funds out and get away at the end. But it's like, you know, she's not doing anything with that, like one point whatever million. It's in a very public ETH address. It's also in like tokens that don't have tons of liquidity. So even trying to get out of that trade is really hard and would like raise a flag. Um, so it's it's just really, I don't know. I think it, it, it's just a strange spot for them to kind of be in. I don't think that they, there's even just like a lot of like 
different players that don't really know what they're doing here, or it's incredibly calculated. And I have to be the more skeptical in this this one. Uh, whereas often I'll try and be an optimist around this kind of thing, but I I I think that this has been planned. And uh, I don't think this is going to be the end we hear about this, by the way. And we will no mm-hmm. doubt be covering some of it for sure. Yeah. But let's move into our second kind of <clears throat> big story here, which is unpacking what's happening in the XRP case. Um, so let's let, let's let's jump right in. A judge has ruled that Ripple's sales of XRP were not securities, except when they were sold to institutions. So. This is interesting. Annalisa Torres, a federal district judge in New York, ruled that one, retail sales via exchanges, which are noted as programmatic sales to public buyers, and two, distributions of XRP to Ripple Labs employees, both did not constitute the sale of unregistered securities. You recall uh, that Ripple has been under suit by the SEC for quite some time now. Uh, and forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a a long time coming. Um, this was like really the core of the case against them. And it looks like they won with that said, there is a caveat here, which is that the judge also ruled that contracts for institutional sales did constitute unregistered security sales. And that was about $728 million worth of contracts. I think that the original, that's key. that's, That's that is key pretty key, and and we'll have to break down the differences between these two things. But I believe that the original suit said that it was what like one point two, one point three billion dollars worth of sales and and exchanges that the SEC were going after Ripple for. So seven hundred twenty eight million dollars worth of contracts is still pretty significant, um, yeah. according to the judge. Those investors quote would have purchased XRP with the expectation that they would derive profits from Ripple's efforts. Whereas she delineated that with the retail sales and the distributions to Ripple Labs employees, they were not necessarily operating under an expectation that they would derive profit uh, from the token. So the way to kind of break this out is that that first offering sale that Ripple Labs made to hedge funds, that was a violation of securities law. However, subsequent sales via exchanges and distributions to their employees were not a violation of securities law. And I think this is kind of key, right? Because, you know, the, the ruling came out, which basically said that, hey, XRP isn't a security. Right? And that, that was the headline, right? And everyone rejoices. And it's like, excellent we've won like blah 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 right i don't think any of us are like massive ripple fans in in, by any respect but (laughs) i I was i was somewhat reluctantly rooting for them here right um but the reality is like you know the actual ruling was xrp isn't a security in these situations Mm -hmm. i still think it's a big win but I think it comes with some very important caveats. And I think caveats that um, that are both, I think, reasonable things that are being brought to, <clears throat> uh, to, to be made, right? It's like, okay, VCs buying tokens uh, with an expectation of, of profit. Uh, I can kind of see that argument, right? I'm no, like, legal expert, but I can see that. 
Uh, now, if you're you're airdropping tokens to someone or a public sale, for example, I, I, I see where that actually, and I think it's right that they shouldn't be deemed as securities in, in that respect. What I do think out of this is I think that there is going to be far-reaching changes to the way in which, in particular, like token issuers think about distributing their token. I think we are going to see a big pullback, a reduction in the ability for protocols to raise capital through private token sales with VCs. I think VCs right. will be spooked. And I think if you are running a protocol where you're doing that right now, I would be very concerned about doing doing that. At the same time, it those those protocols, those projects still need to raise funds. So I think we're not going to see, I think what we might see a lot more of, you know, is are we going to get back to like, the ICO days again. I, I I think that's what we're going to start seeing. I think we're going to see a lot more airdrops as a result of some of this. But it really wouldn't surprise me, as crazy as this is to, to think about, if we see a resurgence in the ICO kind of mania that, that happened in 2017. Interesting. It, it is a an, an open question and a, and a problem to be addressed. But even with that, Ripple is considering this a win. Uh, the CEO yeah. of Ripple Labs, Brad Garlinghouse, tweeted, quote, we said in December 2020 that we were on the right side of the law and will be on the right side of history. Thankful to everyone who helped us get to today's decision, one that is for all crypto innovation in the U.S., more to come. I do think that that sort of the the, the second half of his tweet um, to me is maybe the more important point, which is the mm -hmm. <laughs> ripple effect of this decision. <laughs> there it is. How long you've been sitting on that one for us? Then? Has, that been, has that been since 2020? Uh yeah. <laughs> um, which is that, you know, this, this does set an, an important precedent um, mm -hmm. that uh, I think could make its way all the way to the Coinbase and, uh, uh, Binance cases and beyond. Uh, but regardless, Brad Garlinghouse has said that he, quote, feels vindicated with the ruling. Uh, and the market seemed to feel that way as well. XRP spiked 29% in less than an hour after the ruling. And actually, as of right now, as I'm just checking it during this recording, uh, yeah. which is about a week after the ruling, it's up around 72% and trading at 81 cents, which is up from uh, about 47 cents immediately before the ruling occurred. It hasn't traded this it's high flying. since March of 2022. Yeah, it's it is absolutely flying. Hey, you know, you got to be a real brave person to short XRP right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Moreover, uh, the entire crypto market, including altcoins, went on a rip after this. I don't know yeah. if you were if you were watching that. I assume you were. Matt. Oh like, yeah. Right after this ruling came out, it was pretty wild to see. Um, and then in the subsequent following days, uh, really prominent exchanges started to relist XRP. I believe Coinbase was the first of them and then Kraken and Crypto.com and others. Uh, which I think I it think was Crypto. I think it, I think it might have been Crypto.com. Uh, that was the first the to do it? The reason I know is uh, for, for anyone listening, you may be aware that I, I, I now work at Kraken uh, and we, we shipped it out about a few hours after the the hearing uh or after the ruling and uh just as we were shipping that out 
crypto.com nicely got their announcement out like a few minutes before. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, it, like, I'm all, I, I think it was a nice move from from all of us in the central exchange kind of world to, to get this out. And uh, I know that uh, everyone took some some great pleasure in, in doing so as well. Uh, but yeah. Interesting changes with the exchanges. On top of that, uh, this helped to extend a positive streak of inflows into crypto investment products mm. like ETFs, uh, which now we're on the fourth week in a row of that. Um, or actually, this might be the fifth week at this point. Uh, yep. But this particular week saw a $137 million inflow. And the total at the time was about $742 million in inflow over the prior month, which that's the largest run of inflows since Q4 of 2021. So definitely yeah. a positive reaction from the market on this. Yeah, I was actually looking at um, even even just like overall market spot volume that uh, has been really ramping up month of a month from June uh, to uh, from May to June, um, especially around like the ETF stuff in July spot volume has been huge. Uh, it's, it's, it's really starting to ramp up. I think everything's kind of like coming together a little bit here. You know, we had the, the BlackRock ETF kind of announcement, some yep. reconfiguring of that we are expecting to hear a result in august around some of this we've got the xrp kind of positive news that's kind of pulling this together and you know this is all in the background of uh next year bitcoin halving i i really feel like we're getting some very small momentum especially with us inflation really hammering down much quicker than we thought and I think finally, yesterday, we had some kind of positive news in the UK around inflation finally starting to cool. I think we hit 7.8% when we were expecting uh, 8.2, um, which it was a pretty significant um, dive down. I still think we're probably going to see a half point interest rate hike from the Bank of England. But the, uh, uh, the Fed, on the other hand, I don't know. I think maybe we've got one and we're done, maybe. Um, so things are looking more positive, more capital's flowing in the market. And I, I really think that if we get some positivity around these ETFs, which I I, I am not betting against that at all, um, I think we, we could have a really nice second half of the year. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think with the Fed, it's, it, it's definitely shifting right now. Uh, mm -hmm. From their last meeting minutes, it was looking like maybe one or two 25 basis point hikes. Uh, and then, I mean, for me personally, like I can't ignore the fact that next year is an election year in the U.S. Exactly. And there's going to be, as I've said before, tremendous political pressure to maybe even cut rates at that point. Yeah. Historically speaking, that's when the recession sets in. <laughs> exactly. It's a little unintuitive. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh Regardless, I, I do agree with you, Matt. I, I think that actually uh, not only are we building some small momentum in the space, but I, I think we're doing it on some strong fundamentals here, some mm -hmm. fundamental changes that, that needed to happen as opposed to this last pump and rally that we saw, which I think was largely the result of externalities, uh, like yeah. you know, incredible, unprecedented uh, money printing. This time around, it, it feels like the foundation is, is starting to maybe get a little shored up uh, for the industry. And, and that's good. And a, a, another, you know, interesting outcome of this, perhaps 
it's being set up to be the most interesting outcome is that this will likely impact the SEC's Binance and Coinbase cases. You will recall that the SEC has sued Binance and Coinbase for operating an unregistered securities exchange. This ruling kind of directly undermines that argument. We'll see, of course, how this plays out in the details. Obviously, these are very nuanced cases that are being made here. Um, so it's easy to, for, for there to be you know, details that will pop up throughout the discovery process that uh, could you know, potentially shift direction on these cases, either for the positive or the negative, depending on what side of the fence you're on. But uh, Paul Gruel, Coinbase's chief legal officer, was quoted as saying, I thought we would win before this decision. We think this decision has only further strengthened the case. Mm. And then opposite to him, Gensler at the same time said that he was, quote, disappointed in <laughs> the ruling. And uh, yeah. And when he was asked about an appeal, he said the SEC is, quote, looking at it and assessing that option. Now, what's interesting here is that uh, Congress people are rightfully so jumping on this and, uh, you know, sharing sharing their take on this and what they think this means for the future of the case. Richie Torres, a Democrat congressperson from New York, actually wrote an open letter to Gensler. And I just wanted to pull out a couple of quotes from this that I, I thought were interesting. He, the first thing is that he said, quote, regulation by enforcement had a dreadful day in court. Yeah. And then he said, uh, the SEC's odds of scoring an immediate appeal on the ruling are, quote, vanishingly small. So even though uh, Gensler is saying, you know, we're looking at, at an appeal and everything like that, I think the general sentiment is that that, that at least in the short term, is not really going to work out um, too well for them because there's just so much additional work to be done um, on on the case. Agreed. Uh Additional quotes from Richie Torres, quote, the tenuous legal foundation for the litigation against Coinbase has come crashing down and rightfully so. These are some strong words. And then the last one that I wanted to share is he said, quote, I look forward to finding out how the SEC will reassess its regulatory assault on crypto assets in light of the Torres doctrine. And here, when he's saying Torres doctrine, he's actually not referring to himself. He's, I did for a moment think, wow, that is a, <laughs> what a statement uh, yeah. you're, you're, you're rounding out on your own doctrine. Yeah. Uh, uh, you no, just a reminder that uh, I, I believe this is coincidental, um, is, but the, yeah. the federal district judge in New York, Annalisa Torres, uh, that, that gave the ruling, that is who he is referring to. They just happen to both have the same last name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, here's what I will say. I think the bull case here we've outlined is very positive for the crypto uh, industry, irrespective of your thoughts on the Ripple and XRP project as a whole. Kind of bear case is, or less bear case, I think just like a reminder on this, the SEC is not going to slow down just because of this. They are going to continue to pursue. They've doubled down on their anti-crypto stance. And I would argue that it has kind of almost become kind of part of like this administration's brand, right? Mm-hmm. It will continue. There are a lot of big battles to win. There will be more Wells notices. There will be a lot more that needs to be fought in not just the Coinbase kind of case and, and other exchanges and other um areas of crypto i think we haven't even touched on DeFi just yet and yeah it's this is about taking the wins i think making sure in many cases that 
what we've went through over the past now 18, 24 months of this enormous downturn um, where we've seen actually a lot of like the throth and poor projects get wiped out. Unfortunately, some good ones getting swooped up in the in the middle of that. I think there's a few more kind of chips to fall uh, on, on, on this respect. But we're, we're getting into a position where we're getting more clarity. We're seeing the big institutions. Finally, the thing we've been talking about since we started this podcast in 2017, finally starting to engage and get excited about crypto. And if you saw comments from the BlackRock CEO a couple of days ago, um, where it, it, he was probably the most bullish I've ever heard uh, around kind of the future of crypto, saying that yeah, it is... Now that they're it, involved. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly, exactly, right. And, you know, there's good things and there's bad things about that. But I think more than anything, it is going to have a key core place and seat at the, at the table in the financial industry. And as we start to see movement with these ETFs in particular opens the door for larger capital inflows to start happening. I think we're going to see more banking institutions begin custody offerings of crypto. And I think this is just going to become integrated just like equities are into kind of pretty much every aspect of our financial lives. So, and I think this is a good thing. And I, I really do. And I think it's a very good thing for crypto in particular. Feeling yeah, positive. I- I agree. I, I do think there's a lot of positive to, positivity to come out of this, but I also agree with your sentiment that like that we should not take our eyes off the ball uh, in mm-hmm. in the midst of celebrating this. But certainly, it, it is a positive sign. I mean, we don't have to dance around it. I think it's pretty clear to your point that this is the SEC's brand, at least this version of the SEC, this administration uh, of the SEC would put an end to the crypto system in the US. At least we were on this path, uh, you know, over the course of of the last several months, maybe years even, depending on on how long of a look you want to take at that. And uh, undoubtedly, this will be a disruption to that. And that's a good thing. You know, we want crypto innovation to happen in the US. We don't want to drive it overseas and killing it in the US would do nothing but drive it overseas. And I think that the industry has always been clear that what we want is not no regulation. We want clear and fair regulation that promotes innovation while stifling exploitation and bad actors, et cetera, et cetera. Shutting down crypto is not the way to do that. Rather working with good actors uh, like Coinbase, et cetera, who have been very vocal about this, is the way to do that. And I think that, you know, for Gensler in particular, um, this should be a a moment where he, you know, if he were operating about this rationally, and in my opinion, you know, uh, if he were upholding his duty to the American people, he would be reassessing his position. I I would say over the course of the, his, his uh, lead, to the American people, he's basically been telling Americans that they can't hold or trade crypto, which is a preposterous thing to do. De facto, if every token is a security and they can't operate on exchanges, you're basically removing the ability for Americans to interact with crypto, which is unacceptable. And then to the industry, I found him to be very antagonistic and uncommunicative. Uh, He's, I think, a zealous leader that has been testing the boundaries of the law and what the SEC is allowed to regulate, thus seizing power that the SEC didn't have. And to me, this is an excellent example 
of the U.S. system of checks and balances at work. It's putting the power hungry in check. So I do think that this is a win on on multiple fronts, even maybe, you know, on a principled or philosophical front, you know, from from a, an American perspective, or at least an American legal system perspective. Um, and with that said, I think that, you know, we should keep in mind that Coinbase and, and Binance, their arguments uh, from the SEC is, is that they're selling securities, whereas what Coinbase and Binance are saying is that they're selling tokens, not securities. And this ruling with XRP that it was sold as a token and not a security, that's a precedent. And it's an important yeah. one. So I do think that this is, again, going to have some ripple effects uh, through, for, for their case. But my hope is that it also either impacts the way that the SEC is thinking about uh, their role in our, our government and in the, the regulatory framework, or uh, that it at least limits their ability to attempt to expand their role beyond what isn't it is intended to be. Very well said, Austin. And I think like the <clears throat> for anyone in the US, the the fear of kind of crypto being pushed over overseas is, is very real. You look at most of most of the world now has some kind of level of licensing kind of in regulation in place where companies, institutions can be compliant and protect their users or investors in, in whichever way you've got. Even right now, things like the VASP license that you have across the EU and uh, you've got the upcoming 2026 Mika license that's going to be an EU-wide licensing that, that can be obtained. The US is falling behind huge amounts on, on this front. So mm-hmm. I think this is a step in the right direction. It's going to push us closer towards getting regulatory clarity, which is what everyone wants, agnostic to the outcome of what is uh, determined. People want to have guidance and what we have in the US right now is a vacuum. Austin, let's wrap things up. We've had some pretty bizarre discussions today around multi-chain, <laughs> some positive stuff to, 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 to end out on an XRP and I'll uh, look forward to our discussion next week. I'll see you then. Talk to you then, Matt. Contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.